0: Well, if you started the E100 Bible Reading Challenge on the 24th of January, back when it was still snowing, and if you've kept up at the rate of five uh, readings a week since then, and please don't worry if you haven't done so, but I would encourage you to persevere if you've, uh, and, and, and read at your own pace. But if you have, then you will have reached 2 Samuel chapter 5, and the account of how King David becomes King of Israel. I suspect that this is the point at which, for many of us, our unfamiliarity with the Old Testament starts to really escalate. So, what I'd just like us to do is to watch a very brief video which gives us a bird's-eye view of the whole span of history uh, that the Old Testament is covered by. At the last E100 evening service, we stopped at the point where the people of Israel had left Egypt. They were camped in the wilderness uh, a short time after the exodus from Egypt.
1: The exodus from Egypt probably took place around 1280 BC, and they came into the land of Canaan in about 1240. These first five books are often called the Law, but they contain far more than laws. Then we have a collection of historical books, from Joshua to Esther, which tell how God brought Israel into the land he had promised to Abraham. Under Joshua's leadership, they enter the land, Then there is a repeated cycle of disobedience and restoration under the judges. God appointed deliverers, people like Gideon and Samson, he of the long hair fame. The pattern is broadly, God's people disobey, God promises judgement on them, God's people come back to him seeking forgiveness. There are ups and downs as the nation opts for a king after a period of being led by various judges and then the prophet Samuel. The first king Saul started well but was in the end a failure. David, who killed Goliath, despite some big failings, established the kingdom on a sound footing. His son Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem but was also responsible for the split which happened under his son Rehoboam in about 931 BC. After that, there are two separate kingdoms, the north, known as Israel, and the south, known as Judah. A succession of kings lead the people away from God. The northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC. Judah, in the south, has a mixture of good kings and bad kings, but, despite the warnings of prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, the nation is too often marked by injustice, oppression and the worship of other gods. In 587 BC, they are conquered by the Babylonians and are exiled in Babylon for 70 years, where Daniel survives being thrown to the lions. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell how 70 years later, they came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the walls of the temple and reestablished themselves although they were never again a major force in the region.
0: Well, I hope you found that um, helpful. If you want to go back and re-watch it, it is um, on YouTube and we'll put a link to it from the uh, church website. But that, if you like, is an historical uh, timeline of the Old Testament but we also need to consider the Bible timeline in, the, in terms of the progressive unfolding of the story of God's plan of salvation. So far in our evening services, we've seen um, promise. The promise of God to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And for a brief moment of history... Everything was perfect. And then comes the fall. The situation for mankind, debarred from the garden, seems hopeless until God's promise to Abraham. In grace, God promises that Abraham's descendants will be a great nation. They will possess the promised land. They will be God's own people. And then we saw God's deliverance last time. God rescues his people from oppression in Egypt. And over the course of the readings of the past few weeks, we've seen how God's promise has been fulfilled. There are lots of ups and downs, but the trend is definitely upwards. Israel became a great nation under Moses. They received God's law. They enter the promised land under Joshua. They enjoy, um, despite a pretty torrid time in Judges, they come to enjoy God's blessing under David. Exodus, law, conquest, monarchy. All the signs of God's grace, provision and God's deliverance. And at the end of the final reading last week, if you've read... um, To Samuel, we read David's magnificent prayer. He says this, How great you are, O sovereign Lord! There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself? and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt you have redeemed sorry you have established your people Israel as your own forever and you o oh lord have become their god And you could be be forgiven for thinking that that is the end of the story. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. Just imagine how Hollywood would treat a prayer like that. The hundred-piece orchestra would strike up, the credits would roll. But no. Notice that the storyline has gone up, but it's not back to the heights of the Garden of Eden. The story is not finished. Great though King David is, he is flawed. No man is up to the task of achieving redemption for God's people. And we're left looking forwards to the arrival of King David's greater son. But the predominant theme of the remainder of the Old Testament despite occasional highlights, is one of disappointment. David's adultery with Bathsheba, Solomon's idolatry, the kingdom divided, kings like Ahab that we heard about last week with Elijah, the, north, the uh, rebel against God, the northern kingdom of, of Israel is destroyed by Assyria, the southern kingdom is exiled to Babylon. Disappointment, disappointment, disappointment. But, but, throughout this period of history, we are left wondering what will happen to God's promise to Abraham. What, that that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And in parallel with this historical narrative, we, we find the prophets at work. They come to preach and teach the the law of God. They are, if you like, agents of God's grace and mercy. They come to show Israel and Judah how they're going in the wrong direction. And they encourage them to turn around so that they would go the right way. And they predict the future as well. They're telling the people what the future will look like. To warn them what will happen if they do not repent. Indeed, they're not just looking at an immediate future, they're looking at a long term future, what God is going to do through time and into eternity. They predict, for example, the exodus from the the exile, and Isaiah also predicts the return from exile. That God will bring his people back. They predict that God is going to do some amazing new things with his people. That old cycle, they predict, of rebellion and judgment and decline and collapse is going to come to an end. It is going to be arrested. It is going to be turned around and there is going to be a new demonstration of God's power and grace bringing freedom and redemption. And how is that going to happen? Through a figure, a messiah, the anointed one who is going to come and solve the problem. He is going to be what the judges couldn't be, what the kings couldn't be, what the prophets couldn't be. There's going to be a focus of God's saving, gracious activity. A rescue mission on a scale Far greater than any Old Testament Israel had ever imagined. And the messianic hope for what that's what it is is described in terms of a perfected kingship on the one hand and a continuation of the Davidic line and on, the, on the one hand and a perfect priestly uh, servant on the other. And we get a glimpse of that in the Isaiah passage that you will be reading in a few weeks' time. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, page 740, Isaiah 53. It's a very familiar uh, passage to us, of course, from Christmas services and, and, and the like. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought his peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the perfect servant who performs the perfect priestly role. And what is fascinating about this passage is that as Christians, we read it as we read so many passages of scripture in the Old Testament. And we cannot fail to see Jesus. We cannot see, described in these verses, Jesus' death on the cross, how God lays on him my sin and yours. But sadly, the Jews of Jesus' day could not, and even more sadly, the Jews of today still cannot, Recognize that fact. They see only a distant future, a still yet to come Messiah. How do we explain that? Well, have a look at this picture. What can you see? Hands up if you can see a beautiful girl. And hands up if you can see a sad old woman. The truth is that both are true. Both are there. The beautiful girl and the sad old woman. Can leave it there just for a moment until you see both? Can everyone see both now? Would you like to put your hands up when you can see both and then I'll be able to move on? Right, thank you. (coughs) The truth is that both the suffering servant that Jesus, that that Isaiah... So it is with the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks of. It is fulfilled as Jesus coming and dying on the cross and it will be fulfilled more fully in his second coming. Can we go on to the next one? So what about you? Do you recognise Jesus as the promised Messiah? The one who has paid the price for your sin? Do you recognise um, him as that? Can we see the next slide? If so, praise him for his willingness to be that suffering servant. What do you see when you look at the cross? Is it two planks of wood nailed together? Or is it someone who died for you? If it is, then if you see a, a suffering servant, a saviour, then rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice and praise him. But if not, then I would really urge you to look again and see what you can see. That was an extremely brief overview of the prophetic writings. And I just want to pause for a moment to... um, say that it's very important that we do identify the type of Bible writing that we are reading. So far in our E100 readings, we have mainly encountered historical narrative, the story, and um, law. How God wants his covenant community to live. But the readings that are coming up in the next uh, few weeks... Introduce us to a a new range of styles of writing, types of writing, or genres of writing. We've touched on prophecy, but there's also poetry, where the language is figurative, symbolic. Much of it is intended to, um, to, 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 to challenge us, to make us think. Then there's wisdom literature, a special type of writing common in the ancient Near East, wrestling with the problems of life and sometimes coming up with some pithy uh, advice. And then, of course, once we get into the New Testament, which we will do in a few weeks' time, we discover other forms that we're more familiar with, parables, stories, designed to challenge the reader to make a response. Letters that are written to specific situations and the key thing to remember reading the letters in the, in the New Testament is that they were not written to us, but they are written for us. And so therefore we need to make allowance uh, for the context into which uh, they are written to understand them uh, fully. And then finally there's apocalyptic writing in which, which is found in Revelation but also in parts of the Old Testament Parts of Daniel and Zachariah. You see, what strikes me is that we're very used to different styles of writing um, in our daily lives. But when it comes to the Bible, sometimes it causes us confusion. We distinguish, for example, between uh, tabloid journalism and... um, and, and, and broadsheet journalism, you might remember this uh, famous headline in the Sun after the 1992 general election, expressing none too eloquently that John Major had the Sun to thank for his uh, general election victory. And we can distinguish too between journalism and fiction, even if it's difficult to do sometimes. <coughs> um, But when reading the Bible, we should be similarly um, discriminating. When, for example, David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he wasn't saying that he was a sheep or uh, that the God was a literal shepherd. It's poetry. We're not supposed to take it literally. On the other hand, when we read in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, while they were there, Time came for the baby to be born and Mary gave birth to her firstborn. Luke, the author, a medical doctor, uh, meant exactly that. Jesus was a human baby. He wasn't a a mythical character and we would completely miss the point if we didn't recognise that. This is not picture language. Usually, of course, we we do realise this instinctively. But part of the challenge of correct biblical understanding is to raise that subconscious understanding and interpretation to a conscious interpretation. Sometimes it's it's difficult. Take the Book of Jonah for example, which we will encounter in a few weeks' time. You might uh, it might relate to a historical event, or it might be a parable. But there are lots of different messages that come out of Jonah. But none of them depend on whether the story actually happened or not. By the same token, when we encounter a passage which is presented as a historical fact, we need to stand back and just take that on board. You see, reading the Bible, even as a, a Bible reading challenge, is not an, an, an intellectual exercise. It's an opportunity for us to come and know the true truth and living God and we need to take time to pause to stand back and think the people really did cross the Red Sea David really did slay a giant Daniel really was saved from lions and you see these massive historical events expand our understanding of just how great God is. And we should be not so quick to jump to the spiritual message that we miss the enormity of God's work in history. Returning then to our Bible timeline, the final E100 reading in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi which is the last book in sequence and chronology. Malachi, a close contemporary of Nehemiah. The Jews have trickled back to Judah from exile. The temple has been rebuilt. And you would think that the nation and city of Jerusalem could now be re But there's no king on David's throne. The land is not flowing with milk and honey. The grand vision is, be, is, is not being fulfilled. The old mechanisms are asserting themselves, the pattern that we see time and again in the Old Testament, the casual attitude to God's standards, the half-hearted and compromising worship, the tendency to idolatry. So would you turn to Malachi chapter seven, as chapter four? Uh, <coughs> sorry, Chapter Two, which is on page 961, and Sue's just going to read to us, um, part from uh, Chapter Two, verse 17. Malachi is writing about 100 years after the return from exile, and uh, presents a dialogue between God and the people.
2: You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? You ask. By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty." But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not (coughs) kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty.
0: We don't have time to look at this passage in detail, but I think you'll get the gist of it. In many ways, God's disappointment with his people is writ large over every line. Through Malachi, God brings his complaint against his people. Exile certainly had cured them of idolatry, but they'd settled for a formal religion. Temple worship had become a ritual without reality. But the people just didn't get it. How have we wearied the Lord, they ask, chapter 2, verse 17. How are we to return, chapter 3, verse 7. And then it goes on, chapter 3, verse 8, how do we rob you? They don't get it. The spiritual life of the nation is at a very, very low ebb. And God is moving again upon them in judgment uh, for their sin. But the book ends with both warning and hope. Chapter 1, verse 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. The message is that you want God to come and you want the land to be revived and yet you're living in flagrant disregard of his ways. Flagrant disobedience to God. And so when he comes, he will have to judge again. And that's put very clearly if you turn on to chapter 4, verse 1 in the last chapter. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, a different sort of fire. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So you see, Charles Wesley didn't create those wonderful words. He was quoting Malachi. And you will go out like <clears throat> and, and leap like calves released from the stool. Freedom, vitality, life. So we have right at the end of the Old Testament this dramatic contrast. Which way is it going to go? When he comes, will he judge the wicked and destroy them? And what about those who revere his name? Will that judgment be as a sun of righteousness? It's a very vivid image, isn't it? The same fire that lights and warms is also the fire that burns and destroys. Verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Look forward then to a new age of harmony and love, the righting of wrongs, the destruction of evil. That is what God is going to do. The sin problem is going to be dealt with and his purposes will be fulfilled. And before that day comes, he will send the prophet Elijah. He will turn, verse 6, the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so when the Old Testament Ends. We're left looking forward with increasing longing. When? When will God activate His plan to deal with human sinfulness and all its effects? When will the Messiah come? When? Who will truly fulfill the qualities of the Anointed One? Where will be the eternal kingdom foreshadowed in the Divinic um, monarchy? All of the great Old Testament ideals are crying out for fulfilment at the end of Malachi. But for 400 years, there is no prophetic message. There is silence. The people lived on in the light of what they had received. The Pharisees became strong, committed to living lives of holiness. And while they were waiting for God to come, they wanted to live that life of holiness. They began to develop the whole rabbinic code, the way of interpreting the law. They took the Ten Commandments and the instructions from the Torah and built around them their own additional instructions to explain exactly what they meant, to make them achievable, 365 commandments so that you could do it. But you couldn't. It was impossible. The motivation was good at the beginning. They said, we must keep the law of God. We don't want to be taken off into exile again. But it developed... It developed into a code of self-reliance. And in many ways, they made exactly the same mistake as the people right back at the beginning uh, who built the Tower of Babel. They said, "We we can reach heaven by our own efforts. And if there is one lesson that comes out of the Old Testament, it is this. Such efforts are in vain. We cannot reach heaven. We cannot be made right with God on our own. We cannot pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps. So for centuries there is silence. And yet, and yet, and yet, the people kept waiting and watching like passengers on a railway platform peering for the train that never seems to come. For 400 years, that's like us looking back to the great fire of London and keeping hope alive over all of that time. Until one day, a baby is taken to the temple in Jerusalem. And a man, one of those who was looking out for the coming Messiah, recognised him as the coming Saviour. For my eyes, Luke 2, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A new day has dawned. And as we turn over into the New Testament, one thing is now abundantly clear. The page which is put inconveniently between the Old and the New Testament has no business to be there. It is the only uninspired page in the Bible if it misleads us into separating the two halves of the the Bible. The birth of Christ is the next critical step in the unfolding story of God's plan of salvation. We've seen the promise of God, the deliverance of God, and now the disappointment that characterizes so much of the Old Testament. And that's not to say that there's no merit in reading the Old Testament. Far from it. Because it points us forwards to the one who will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Of course, we could start reading the Bible at Matthew, but our appreciation, our understanding of Christ is so much greater when we start reading at Genesis. It is the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ that finally brings about the fulfillment of the promises that we read about in the Old Testament. And That will be the theme of our final E100 session in April. But in the meantime, I'd like to leave you with this thought. We celebrate Easter in just three weeks' time. As you do so this year, try and reflect back on all that we have seen in the Old Testament that points forward to the cross. Remember the perfect lamb that was sacrificed at Passover? The suffering servant in Isaiah? The one who was to come as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. It all points forward to Jesus. So let us rejoice in that.